I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 125, and it's a look at what it was like to be poor in Tudor England and how the conversation began to shift around how to care for the poor, leading right up to the 1601 Poor Law that became the standard for 250 years. But first, I need to thank my patrons. It's been a while since I've done a full patron thank you, and I need to give you the love that you so richly deserve. Thank you so much to Al, Andrea, Babette, Berta, Selene, Char, Christine, Cynthia, Delia, Donna, Elizabeth, Empresa, Helen, Ian, Janine, Jim, Joanne, John, another John, Jurgen, that's my dad, Candace, Kara, Catherine, Kathy, and then another Kathy. One Kathy has an I, the other has a Y. Katie, another Katie, Kendra, Kimberly, Lady Anne, aka Jessica, Maura, Melissa, Michael. Hey, Michael. I can't wait to meet you at TudorCon. Michael's bringing his musical, The King's Legacy, to TudorCon. You can learn more about it. Philip, Ryan, Shandor, Sarah, Stephanie, Susan, Rebecca from Tudor's Dynasty, who is amazing, Twyla, Vicky, and Wendy. Thank you so much to all of you. You are all awesome. I am so incredibly grateful to all of you, to each of you for being supporters and for keeping this show independent and allowing me to do this work. So thank you. If you would like to join this club of ever so intelligent people and get virtual hugs from me, as well as some other cool rewards, you can do so at patreon.com slash Englandcast. So for those of you who don't know, Patreon is a platform that allows you to support creators and I'm on there. You can sign up for as little as a dollar an episode and get rewards and all kinds of fun stuff. So now let's talk about the poor. Like so many aspects of life in the 16th century, the treatment of the poor changed radically between 1485 and 1601, which was when the landmark Elizabethan Poor Law was passed. The 1601 law was the standard for several centuries, and as such, it then became the basis for the attitudes towards caring for the poor in America, as well as Australia and other places that England colonized. I think that most people, no matter where you are on the spectrum politically, would agree that society has some kind of duty to caring for the poor and the most vulnerable among us, at least for the poor who are sick or disabled, 
who are elderly and basically unable to work. In Elizabethan times, these people were called the impotent poor, and a distinction was made between the impotent poor and the idle poor, which was the people who could work, but they were considered poor because they were lazy. So they were people who could work, but just didn't. So those were the idle poor. We probably even make that distinction ourselves. We might agree, for example, if, if someone has a disability, they should be cared for with benefits. But we might argue that unemployment benefits for an able-bodied person should be limited. This distinction is rooted in the Elizabethan period. Before the mid-16th century, the poor were the poor were the poor were the poor were the poor. There really weren't any kind of differences between the deserving or the lazy poor that we come up with now. They were all just poor. Now, in our modern day times, we might argue between us about the role of the private versus public enterprise in caring for the poor, i.e. how much should a national government take on versus local governments or even non-governmental organizations like churches or charities. These are lasting debates that were started during the Reformation. But I think most of us would agree that we do have some kind of duty to the poor. And that comes directly from the 1601 poor law that took on responsibility for the most vulnerable people in society. So in this episode, we're going to go back and look at some of the history of the treatment of the poor pre-Reformation and the great shift that took place, and then that lead up to the 1601 legislation. By Elizabeth's time, nearly one third of the population of England lived in poverty. These numbers exploded during the 16th century. During the time of Henry VII, there wasn't really a huge problem with poor people. A big part of that was because the population itself wasn't as big. In 1485, the population of England was still recovering from the Black Death, which, despite having wreaked its destruction over a century earlier, had wiped out the population so much that it would take actually several hundred years to come back. Before the Black Death in 1347, England and Wales together had a population of about 6 million people. In 1485, the population of England and Wales together was only about 2 million. Now that would double to 4 million by 1600. And like I said, a third of them were living in poverty. So we've got about 1.3 million people living in poverty, which is very close to the entire population of England a century before. Additionally, the population was becoming increasingly urban. More on that impact in a couple of minutes here. So another change that we have is this early mini industrial revolution, both with the iron industry and the wool industry. The population is becoming more urban, and the old feudal laws where a lord or a wealthy landowner would take care of the peasants and serfs no longer applied. On top of this, we see a rise in land enclosures where previously public land was fenced off for the wealthy to graze their sheep. This was to get wool, but that would leave the poor without any public lands to use to grow food or graze their own animals. And this led to a number of rebellions, the most famous one possibly being Ket's Rebellion during the reign of Edward VI. It also meant that it contributed to this growing industrialization. So what did it actually mean to be poor in Tudor and Elizabethan England? The main thing is you were constantly, constantly preoccupied with food and not in a, I need to log this on my lose it app later on sort of way like I am, but in a, how are we going to eat this year sort of way. If you were a poor laborer in Tudor England, you would work for a yeoman farmer from sunup to sundown, six days a week. In the summer, that meant you were in the fields by by about five, going on until about 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. For that day's labor, you were paid about a groat. What would a groat buy you? A groat would buy you a chicken, some bread, cheese, a little bit of butter, and that was about it. 
So let that sink in for just a minute. A chicken costs the equivalent of a full day's hard labor. To me, this is one of the most striking things about the changes in our post-industrialist capitalist economy. So food is always available to us. It might not be the healthiest food as the food deserts in some inner cities can attest, but it's still food. You don't work a 15 hour shift and then make the equivalent of a chicken. So getting enough to eat was a constant struggle for the poor in Tudor England. If there was a bad harvest, you would have to figure out what you were going to do to get through the winter as well as the early spring. So remember when you needed to have a lot of calories and energy to plant the seeds, to plant that year's crops, nothing had been harvested harvested yet. And it was still too early for fruits and gardens. So if your harvest was bad in September, October, you needed to get through not just until March or April, but all the way through for another couple of months until you could start harvesting things or or having your garden come to fruition. So if you were a laborer and you had a wife, that wife might plant a garden and then salt or store vegetables to use through the winter. You might have chickens for eggs. And it's likely that if you were a poor laborer, you wouldn't be able to afford a cow. But if you were on the higher end of the scale, you might, which would mean that you could also have cheese, eggs, and butter easily. Of course, that cow was also going to need to be fed through the winter, just like you. So if the harvest were bad, you might have to make some tough choices about whether or not Dolly the dairy cow would be part of your family after about January or so. If you were poor, remember that your daily salary would only buy you a chicken. So if you wanted something luxurious like, I don't know, clothing, You were either going to have to have a little bit less food for that day, or you're going to have to figure out a way to make your own. And so your wife would probably spin the flax and make wool for your clothing. You didn't have a lot in the way of possessions. Your home had a dirt floor. There was a fire in the middle of the one room. You lived in one room, possibly with five or six other people. And in order to keep you from suffocating, you would have a hole in the roof. But the room would still be incredibly smoky. It would also be very, very dark. So you didn't have window glass because you couldn't afford window glass. You can afford window glass. And so you wouldn't want to have a lot of extra windows, which were just holes in the home and covered up with shutters. So you'd maybe have one window. And even in the summer, it wouldn't be very light. You would sleep on straw if you were lucky. And you probably own just a few simple things like a cooking pot, a spoon, a few baskets or pots to store your food, maybe some tools to do your work, and then your clothing. So being poor in Tudor and Elizabethan England meant a constant struggle to survive each year, to find enough food to keep you healthy and making everything else that you would need. So let's go back to 1485, where we have this attitude that there's still plenty of work. If you aren't working, it's your own fault. There aren't a lot of extra people. The population is still recovering from the Black Death, like I said. So with the earliest poor law legislation, we actually see a desire to punish poor people, to deter idleness. At this point, a lot of people actually didn't think you wanted to help the poor that much because being poor was something that you would see it and that would be a deterrent for you. So you would work even harder so you wouldn't wind up like that. So if anything, you wanted to punish the poor because you were worried that they might rebel or if they if they had a lot of extra time on their hand, they were going to become unruly. So it was actually more about punishing people, making it punitive, making it a bad thing to be poor, to take care of this potential unruliness rather than actually caring for the poor. So in 1494, Henry VII passed the Vagabonds and Beggars Act, which said that idle people should be placed in the stocks, and then they should be returned to the land where they last lived or where they were born. The government was and continued to be afraid that these vagabonds, who didn't seem to have any home base, 
nothing to tie them to the success of their own town or birthplace and, and no jobs. A, a bunch of people without any jobs, without a sense of civic pride who didn't work was a potential mob. And the goal, like I said, was to control this potential mob rather than offer any kind of meaningful poor relief. So again, poor being poor was seen as a deterrent. So you wanted to keep a certain amount of poor people around just to, to keep you from being lazy yourself to be able to point to them and say, look, if you don't work hard, this is what's what you're you're going to become. And at the same time, you wanted to make sure that those poor people were punished because you didn't want them turning into a mob. There was also the fear that these idle people were going to become criminals, funding their lives through stealing and through petty crimes. That was followed a few decades later with the Vagabonds Act of 1531. Now that stated that only licensed beggars could legally beg. So people had to apply to the local justice of the peace who would license the impotent poor to beg. Remember, we talked about the impotent poor. That means only the sick, disabled, or elderly were allowed to legally beg. If you were lazy, you had some kind of issue that kept you from working, or you just couldn't find a job, things got even harder for you in 1536. That's the year that Henry, Henry VIII, passed the Act for Punishment of Sturdy Vagabonds and Beggars. So if you were caught without work outside of your parish, you could be whipped through the street. If you had a second offense, you would lose an ear. Third strike and you're out, literally. You could be executed for the third offense. But most people were very reluctant to enforce this act, which, you know, makes sense because it's a pretty terrible piece of legislation. But again, we still see this punitive punishments being given to poor people rather than any kind of trying to help them at all. And again, there is that distinction between the idle and the impotent poor. So people were being divided up into the deserving poor and the non-deserving poor. So in 1547, Henry's young son, Edward, got some help from his uncle, the protector at Edward Seymour, who helped to draft the 1547 Vagabonds Act. Now, this said that each parish was responsible for taking up a weekly collection for the poor, but it also said that vagabonds who were caught could be enslaved for two years. During that time, they were to be fed bread and water, they would be forced to work, and they could be bought and sold just like any other slave. And if nobody wanted to buy the slave, then they could be sent back to his town of birth and forced to work for the community there. If said vagabond had children, those children would be given apprenticeships until the age of 24 for boys and 20 for girls. So if you were caught poor, a vagabond, you could be enslaved for two years. These poor laws were incredibly unpopular, as one might expect. And so in 1550, this law was repealed and the 1531 law was back. A series of poor laws was passed. One in 1552 required a register of the poor to be created and empowered parishes to raise local taxes to help them. But again, this was just for the deserving impotent poor. The beggars, sturdy beggars, or people who were not considered deserving could still be whipped through the town. In 1555, Mary passed her own poor act, Mary I, which required beggars to wear an identifying badge, like buskers in Covent Garden or something, where you, you get approved and you wear a badge that says you're a licensed beggar. So again, these laws really seem to be about punishing those who were seen as undeserving and creating a system to license the ones who were deserving, but mostly just so that they could beg. There wasn't any kind of structure in place to provide any kind of lasting relief for people in terms of training or jobs or education. Now, this brings us to a discussion of why this system didn't yet exist. Because before the Reformation, all poor relief was left entirely up to monks and to nuns who would provide alms and education and medical care to those who needed help. The monasteries already had this system in place, 
nationwide to provide a rudimentary education to poor orphans, to help care for aging people who had no children to take care of them, or to help provide for basic skills training. Monasteries would also help to care for the poor by giving out alms and encouraging charity from their wealthy church members and patrons. But with that system gone, help for the poor became totally secular. After the dissolution of the monasteries, the responsibility for caring for the poor shifted to the state. This is clearly a side effect that the monarchs had not planned for. And it's one of the reasons we see this flurry of activity in the mid-1530s onwards relating to caring for the poor or punishing those who didn't work. Even without the disillusion, this would likely have become more of a problem over time because the population was moving increasingly towards cities, which made it harder for monasteries to care for them. It was easier to disappear in a city with thousands of people rather than just in a small parish. So we have this huge shift. And it's the foundation of the debate that still goes on today in how to care for the poor. Does the government take care of the poor or do charities and churches? Well, obviously, if you're going to destroy the church, then the government would need to take over. But nobody was really thinking about that in the late 1530s as Cromwell was busy going around dissolving things. So it took until the 1570s for people to really begin to have some serious and meaningful conversations about how to care for the growing number of poor. The Vagabonds Act of 1572 was a law that was passed that provided justices of the peace. They were to register the names of the aged, decayed, and impotent poor. That's like a horrible title. You know, you get to be over 70 and suddenly you're decayed, right? So they were supposed to register the names of the aged, decayed, and impotent impotent poor to determine how much money was required to care for them. So then the justices of peace would then assess all the inhabitants of the parish for their keep. So they would basically go around and say, okay, in our parish, we've got 25 people who are living in poverty. It's going to take this amount of money every year to care for them. So now I'm going to go around and take up a collection for that and go from house to house to house and assess people for that. And then there were overseers of the poor who would periodically conduct views and searches, they were called, of the poor. And those refusing to contribute to the poor would be fined or jailed. So how's that? Can you imagine if you're just hanging out like from the other side of it. Say you're a wealthy person, you're hanging out at home and along comes this justice of the peace and he says, you know, it's going to take this amount of money to care for the poor and you're responsible for this amount of it. And if you don't pay, you get to go to jail. So any of you who are are libertarians (laughs) might be cringing at that, right? So let me just state that again. In 1572, we see commissioners set up to figure out just how much money was needed to take care of the poor in each parish. And if the rest of the community didn't pay up to help, they would be put in jail. Justices of the peace were allowed to license beggars if there were too many for the parish to provide for. And any unlicensed vagabonds could be whipped and burned through the ear. It further provided that any surplus funds could be used to place and settle to work the rogues and vagabonds. So if there's extra money, they could use that to help get work for the people who were vagabonds. All of this leads up to the 1601 Act for the Relief of the Poor. The 1601 Poor Law, which was the basis of dealing with English poverty for 250 years, formed the American legislation around poverty as well. 170 years later, no less a statesman than Ben Franklin would comment on that 1601 law, and he said that it took away the incentive for people to work, for it made their lives too easy in poverty. So here's what it did. The impotent poor, the people who can't work, old, sick, orphans, blind, and otherwise disabled, were to be cared for in an almshouse or poorhouse. The law offered relief to people who were unable to work, mainly those who were lame. 
impotent, old, or blind. The able-bodied poor were to be set to work in a house of industry, and materials were to be provided for the poor to be set to work. And you see all kinds of interesting things happen. Like in Bristol, they wound up making factories where the poor would you know, make things, and then it, they would be sold, and that would go back into caring for them, right? So you get these little industries going going on with these houses of industries. Then the idle poor and the vagrants, what we would consider kind of basic homeless people today, were to be sent to a house of correction or even prison. So if they weren't able-bodied, um, but they also couldn't work, they were to be sent possibly to prison or a house of correction. And children who were pauper children would become apprentices. So apprenticeships would be found for them. The 1601 Act was administered by the parish. There were about 1,500 parishes in England based on the area around the parish church. This meant that those who were overseers would likely know each of the poor people individually, would know their circumstances, and would be able to divide them into the deserving or undeserving poor. Those who paid the tax to help with the poor were the landowners and some tenants. The other issue with the reliance only on the parish was that if there was a local problem, like a bad harvest, it meant that a lot more strain was put on that particular parish that year, rather than possibly having a national pool to handle the relief. There were no national standards in place, and so there was a lot of variation in how the relief was given out. Parishes were left to interpret the law on their own, and each parish was legally responsible for their own poor. This meant that some cities gave out much more poor relief, and some poor people did try to leave and go to more generous places. So by the mid-1600s, it was amended so that you had to be a resident of the parish through birth, marriage, or apprenticeship. If a person couldn't prove that they were a resident of that parish, they were moved to another parish where they could prove that they had a connection. While there was plenty to criticize in the Tudor and Elizabethan poor laws, especially the early ones, they are the basis for the social welfare systems in America, Australia, and many other places. And it was the first time in 1601 that a law was passed nationally to try to deal holistically with the problem of the poor. And it also legally recognized that society has a legal duty to care for its most vulnerable citizens. And that was a huge thing to come up at that point to say, yes, we are responsible. It was just huge. And that was, again, a large part because the the church was gone. So if the church is gone, then the government has to step in. And so the government stepped up and they said, okay, we are responsible for that. Here's what we're going to do. So there actually is a lot to praise with these poor laws. It's also interesting to think about this shift in thinking where relief for the poor went from being something that was handled by the church and the government was implementing these punitive measures to poor relief being a secular duty. So that's it for this week. There's a fair amount of scholarly articles and books written about the Tudor poor, including one called The Problem of the Poor in Tudor and Early Stuart England by A.L. Byer. That's on Amazon. I'll link to them on the site at englandcast.com slash poor. Again, englandcast.com slash poor. You can get in touch with me always through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO or through Twitter at Tesco. That's T-E-Y-S is in Sam, K-O. Tesco or facebook.com slash englandcast. I'm going to be back in about two weeks looking at something I am fascinated by, which is the history of sugar in Tudor and Elizabethan England. So pack up your toothpaste because we're going to be going on a really super sweet journey. (laughs) Talk with you in a couple of weeks. Blow northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoor te boord in Bauerbrich, dat soli semli is on sich.